This episode of Manage Smarter is presented by Sales Fuel Coach, our adaptive sales coaching featuring five-minute quick coaching personalized to each sales rep. Learn more about Sales Fuel Coach at salesfuel.com. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. COVID-19 still going strong. And if we got a guest today, Lee, that is going to help us make sense not only of the economy and what to look for, but also our own data at work and in our departments, and maybe looking at that a little bit more critically and harnessing it to do some pivoting. The theme of the show is always manage smarter and you and the best way to manage smarter is to use data. And so that's what we're going to talk about today and especially in light of the COVID-19 economy. That's right. Welcome to Manage Smarter, everyone. I'm Audrey Strong. I'm the Vice President of Communications here at Sales Fuel. And I'm C. Lee Smith, the President and CEO of Sales Fuel. All right, Dr. John Johnson on deck. He is a PhD economist and the CEO of Edgeworth Analytics, a DC-based data consulting firm that empowers professionals to unlock data's potential. And oh boy, can he. <laughs> John understands how to transform companies' raw, messy data. Oh, we don't have any of that. No. Um, into meaningful analysis and reliable results that empower informed decision-making. A teacher at heart, John, known for his ability to explain technical concepts simply and clearly, and we love that. And so, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. It's great to join you guys today. So do we want to start off with, um, we were talking about the economy, and uh, Lee, you had a question about some of the leading well, yeah, I wanted to ask a question. Let's so let's just jump right into to COVID-19 economy. So what are the leading indicators that, that, that managers and leaders should be looking at? Uh, you know, when, when they're watching CNBC or Fox Business, reading the Wall Street Journal, et cetera, uh, to be able to ter- determine whatever, you know, how the economy is trending. Are we coming out of it? How quickly are we coming out of it? Or are we staying in it? You know, what should we be looking for? Great question. And, you know, it's it, one of the things that is complicating, uh, even an assessment of what's going on is, is first, this is unprecedented. People use that phrase way too often in the world of economics. Um, we've never seen anything quite like this. Um, this is a public health crisis married to an economic crisis. And so you've got to solve both to sort of come out of it. So what are the practical things that someone can look to? Well, one of the other problems is the data lags behind quite a bit. You know, all of these data sets that are being released, whether you see, you know, last week we had uh, unemployment numbers, but those unemployment numbers, which were the most up-to-date sector by sector numbers, um, they are lagged about three, four weeks. So what I would say is the things that look the most contemporaneous, one is the weekly unemployment insurance claims. Uh, Those are released by state. Those are released on Thursdays. And you can just sort of see how that's moving. And that's going to be important when you sort of cross-reference that with the state-by-state coronavirus, you know, case numbers. Now, it's a little tricky to watch those because one of the sort of secrets of looking at coronavirus cases is not just the well-publicized flattening of the curve, but also how many tests are states doing? Um, because if you're doing less tests and you're getting more cases, that gives you a different interpretation than if you're doing more tests and you're finding more cases. That's what you'd expect. So I think those are two places you could start to look, uh, looking for flattening the curve and looking at the unemployment insurance claims. Are they going up and down? One other thing I would point people to is remember, this is essentially 50 states that all have different reopening policies. And so 
we're going to start to see a lot of studies, and that's one of the things that my firm is looking at, how as they reopen, what types of strategies are effective, what types of strategies are spiking the number of cases. That's really where the, the uncertainty that's about to happen for us is. It's great because we got about 50 different scientific experiments all going on at the same time as opposed to just one. So we're going to be, maybe we're going to be able to learn a little bit quicker. I hope so, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there are going to be economics dissertations and statistics dissertations on this five, 10 years from now. This is going to be one of the most studied phenomenon ever. That's really doesn't give us much comfort as we're living through it. But um, as a practical matter, there are a lot of interesting lessons that hopefully can be learned to, to avoid this kind of thing in the future. So if you put the brakes on your business because you've somehow been declared non-essential, let's say just for the purposes of this discussion that you're, you know, you have a business that's like, you know, a daycare or a gym. Um, and you're in a state that's reopening. I happen to be sitting in Texas, which the governor is wanting to reopen aggressively and the cities don't want to. But what are the data points you should look at to make your decision um, that you can reopen should you reopen? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. What, what, what should I be looking at? What should I be considering? So here's where the challenge comes with these issues. Okay, if this were just simply an economic issue, obviously you'd want to look at um, what drives the demand for your services how effectively can you provide your service remotely? Um, can you live in a world where you can continue remote working? So I'll give you a really simple example. I, my consulting firm, we have all of our employees remote. Um, it's actually working quite well for us. So the, one of the assessments that I'm doing is I'm looking at sort of risk of infections, risk of employees getting sick, what the consequences on the health side would be. I'm balancing that against how successful can I be in terms of um, actually running a remote business. If you can run your business at all remotely, um, I think that's probably preferable. And I know I don't want to be the first one to reopen. I don't think that's probably the right strategy. On the other hand, there are a whole host of businesses that have had to shutter and really can't do anything unless they're remote. So one of the things I would think you want to look at is what is going to be the cost of reopening and particularly you know, there will be regulations like OSHA regulations about what your employees have to do, um, what kind of protective measures that will cost money. And the other question is, what will the demand for your services look like? You know, are people, you know, if people don't get over the psychological hurdle, if they don't feel safe, they may not come back to your business. So opening could be not really stimulate demand. Um, so you really have to understand what is the source of your customer base and do you expect those people will come back or not? You know, also, let's talk about the psychology of your employees, too, because you're going to have some people that are that are scared to come back to work or scared to leave the house. It's like, would it be useful for them, for example, to, to, to actually take a look at not just the number of coronavirus cases, but the number of, of people in a state to actually take, take a look at, OK, what are my odds of actually getting coronavirus? Is that a useful idea or are there other advice that you can give? Well, one of the things that I've been looking closely at, and you know, we've created a series of sort of interactive maps uh, at our website, edgeworthanalytics.com, where we've actually tried to lay out zip code by zip code, where are the highest probabilities of people sort of getting coronavirus for different states. This data isn't available at the zip code level for every state yet. Um, I think what is important as a manager, and this is where your data skills have to meet your people skills, you know, if your employees are afraid, what are the reasonable accommodations you can make? How can you be educated in a way that you can actually effectively assess the risks? One of the problems is, you know, you kind of need a breadth of knowledge. I'm not an epidemiologist, so all I can do is look to what is the data telling us from professionals and from the government. And, but I am an economist, so I can look at, all right, well, what do I think is going to happen? But that's a pretty tricky management issue. In some respects, the HR aspects of that are probably one of the most important things as you try to manage your workforce in terms of their fear, their expectations of getting back to work, how you, how you deal with them. 
So which one really takes, takes precedence? Is it the data or is it the story that the data tells, you know, or, or is, is it the people skills or the data skills, which is, which is really should be more prevalent during a, a period like this? Well, I don't think you have to make a choice. I actually think if you do it mm-hmm. right, the data skills are informed by the people skills, right? One of the fallacies of working with data sets is that data just gives you the answer and there's a, there's a correct answer and it's rigorous and that's the end of the story. And I actually think that's kind of a fallacy. At the end of the day, really good data analysis is informed, though not driven by other types of considerations, including how you understand your business, how you understand your workforce. Um, you don't want to take all the knowledge you have and throw it out with the data. You want to bring it to the data and then sort of put it to the test in a rigorous way. So I would say, I don't think you have to make the choice. I think you can actually use both side by side. That's the effective, the most effective data analyses in my opinion. So use your people skills in the form of hypothesis and then actually then use data then to, to test that hypothesis and probably you know, and to determine and to see if you're right or not. Exactly right. I was going to say, my next question was going to be, what's your process? Because, you know, when I was a journalist, we would get, you know, data sets from whoever for a story. And I'd be like, well, yeah, but they can twist this however they, you know, make them. Do you have a best practice for how to interpret numbers in a situation like COVID-19? Or to tell if the source is reliable or yeah. not. Junk yeah. Stuff. Yeah, I, I actually, you know, one of the things we do when I sort of teach classes on data analytics for business people is I start with sort of, let's start with, what is the question you're really trying to answer? Mm. And that sounds like something, oh, that's so simple. But it actually, oftentimes, when you start to dig in, it's amazing how if you can be more focused about what it is you need to know, that's going to really guide everything else. So I always start with what is the question? Then you have to assess, well, what data do I have available? And what are the sort of limitations of that data? And so it's not just, you know, we might want a perfect data set. We may not have it. But if you go off on an analysis and you haven't really thought about, well, here's what I have, here's what I can't answer, here's the limitations. Then when you actually get to doing the statistics, in some respects, I don't want to downplay the importance of statistical methodology. But when I'm working with business people, they help me with parts one and two. I can run the statistical analysis for them, and then we can talk about what it shows and how that squares with what we thought might be going on. But that's really the process. It's about being rigorous enough to think about, what's my question? And then, well, what, what is this data? And is this data telling me something? I'll give you a simple example from COVID right now. In the beginning, when we started to look at the numbers on the number of cases, um, we were seeing these huge spikes without really any consideration of the fact that who are the most likely people to be tested when there's limited testing? The people that have symptoms. So you saw sort of um, infection rates and death rates early on that were mind-blowing and much higher than other countries. And part of that was simply the phenomenon of the data that was available was highly selected. We were getting a lot of sort of the cases were from people that were really, really sick. We had a bias in the samples. (laughs) Sure. Exactly right. And so thinking about those things, you know, you don't need to be a statistician to understand that. It just requires a little bit more thinking about what the sources are, what the data is. And, you know, and so I always try to teach people the intuition. If you have good intuition, that doesn't mean that displaces what the data tells you. There are numerous times where I've thought one thing and looked at the data and said, wow, it's really not supported. But it's a much more informed decision because if it's not supporting what I thought it was, well, what, why? <laughs> How yes. do I get there? Yeah. I'm going to have to ask that question anyway. So many times I see managers or, or just people in general then will actually just look for data that, that supports what they believe to be true. They're looking for comfort, not for truth. And so how can you uh, advise people then to keep their minds open then to actually go where the evidence takes you rather than trying to fit the evidence to, to your preconceived notion of what is? 
Right. Look, that is one of the hardest things. We all mm-hmm. have to be disciplined when you approach data. And so I often think uh, when I tell people, well, you still can have intuition and thoughts about it. That's not the same as saying, let's, let's have confirmation bias where I know what the answer is I want. You get it for me. Uh, that's not useful. There's no reason to go to the data. I mean, people know we are in a data-driven world. The amount of data, just in, in all of our lifetimes, the amount of data is insane. And even the pace at which it sort of proliferates is crazy. Um, so what you really have to do is sort of bring a degree of objectivity. And part of why I hammer on that concept of define the question is then we can say, well, what would an answer look like? What would be, what would be the threshold over which I'd say, well, this is what this means or not. You know, again, that upfront discipline of really trying to scope out the problem is a pretty important part of that. Whereas if it's like, well, go find me numbers that show me this, well, that's just not, that's not science. That's cherry picking. And that's just not, you know, that's not going to be helpful. And ultimately it may give you cover in the short run, but that's not the point. The point is you actually want to make the best decision possible as a business manager. Yeah. I, I would like to draw on your, um, as you said, you were a, a, a wonk um, <laughs> in terms of an economist. Speaking a little bit more broadly, though, we have 36 million unemployment claims. Can you give us a sense of a reopening timeline and economic recovery from, say, 15,000 feet in, in your amazing... Yeah, we want to know length. what letter it's going How to be. How long does it <laughs> take to reverse all of this? Is it a Z? So look, I think... So let me sort of start with some good news and then I'll give some bad news. <laughs> Typical economist, both hands. Um, okay. first, we'll first start with the good news. Uh, because we know what caused this economic crisis, uh, this isn't like the 1982 recession where we had stagflation. This isn't like the 2008 recession where we knew we had asset pricing bubbles and toxic mortgages and things like this. We know the cause. We, we purposely, as a society, shut down large swaths of the economy because of a health situation. So... In that sense, when you look back historically, the likelihood of recovery should look more like things that happened akin to a natural disaster, you know, like a hurricane, because Mm -hmm. when we sort of come back, hopefully those structural things will kind of ease up. So that's the good news. Now, you see a lot of people talking about a V-shaped recovery, that we're going to come out of this as quickly as we went into it. I think that's pretty um, unlikely. And Mm -hmm. the reason why is there's been a, you know, 36 million is a lot. I mean, that is a gigantic loss of jobs. And one way I'll try to put it in perspective for you is we have a daily infographic where what we do is we liken and show, uh, take, pretend the sea level at the start of the coronavirus was sort of where it was. How high would the water have risen if you'd gone from the number of, you know, uninsurance claims we had back at the beginning of this to 36 million? Right now, we would have covered all the cities up to Omaha, Nebraska would be underwater. (laughs) All right. That's a massive amount of unemployment. So as that starts to happen, now for that to come back and unwind, well, what companies were able to survive? Um, The situation, as this goes on longer and longer, it makes the recovery harder and harder because you start to have other structural problems. So am I optimistic that we can come back? Yes. Will there be sectors that will actually take off and benefit from this? Yes. But some of these hard hit sectors like restaurants, like airlines, like accommodations, Mm -hmm. this could be a long haul for them. And that's going to put a real drag on the economy. So I think that's the mixed news is we don't necessarily have to expect this to take as long to recover as we have from prior recessions. But there could be real winners and losers, unfortunately. And some of these sectors could really take years to recover. Yeah, and then you got the fear factor. So not only do you have travel entertainment, which is going to take a while to come out of it, but I, I also believe that 
anything like events or anything that involves gatherings of large groups of people is going to take a while to come back. Yeah, the psychology of this is another part of this. You know, one of the sort of areas of economics that I find most interesting is sort of what's called behavioral economics. And, you know, Mm -hmm. for years, you've probably heard about, oh, economists think everybody's rational, and that's sort of the framework people use. But behavioral economists sort of recognize that people often behave irrationally or based on emotion. And so how do you model those things? Well, here's a case where you're not going to expect that most people, I don't know, I'm not going back to a restaurant anytime soon <laughs> um, to go sit in a restaurant, you know, psychologically, right? So that really does depress the demand for some of these things. And so you're absolutely right that we have to deal with the psychology. That's why things like testing, things like social distancing, things like a vaccine or a treatment, if you can get a handle on the health crisis, you can start to you know, alleviate the psychological barriers that are going to impede the recovery. Well, it's <clears throat> vaccine would certainly be a game changer, but oh, yes, 24 but, months or so they're saying, right? Yep. Yeah. It could be a while. And so that's not, um, that's just what, okay, do we have a chance to get back to some normal that looks like what it was, you know, just a few months ago? One other thing I have a question about, and Lee and I have talked about this, is the stock market. So in general terms, it's not mirroring what's happening in real time with the economy. I mean, it's, it's, it's not crashed, you know, or it's not tr- triggering the stops. It's like soaring, and it's yeah. counterintuitive to what Lee was saying, which is the feeling and the certainty doesn't match really it, it is, what's happening. And I, I would like to know why. It's very yeah, just as you were saying, it runs totally counter to what was happening in 2008 when, you know, when we had a housing bubble. Right. So look, I the markets are puzzling. Okay, and I said I, I like to. I'm okay, a labor, I'm not crazy. I, good. <laughs> no, no, and I, you know, and I, I thought I, was like weird. To, I always like to be. You know, I'm a, a labor economist. You know, I'm not a financial economist. I'll right. speak to this, but you know, sort of. But basically, what markets often represent is expectations of mm. investors. Uh, the idea that first certain sectors they believe there are actual investment opportunities right now seems to be part of it part of it seems to be that the market is at least responding well to the federal reserve's responses to these you know problems right now um but it there is a odd dichotomy and it is not out of the question that either the market had already built in a lot of this uncertainty so as a practical matter you know they're sort of still there you could have a situation where all of a sudden if things get worse, if the reopening strategies don't work, um, you could see a lot of, we could have another problem there. So I don't think, um, I do agree that on its face, it seems a little bit counterintuitive, but again, markets are about expectations. And right now the expectations of investors is that I think part of it is we understand what's causing this. So that gives us hope that it will be undone later. That makes sense. Well, the website is edgeworthanalytics.com. And I love your Twitter handle, at everydata. (laughs) And is there anything else on the website besides that map that you want people to go to? Can you just tell us that? We've got like about a minute left. Sure. So we have a lot of resources on the website. Obviously, we've been doing a lot of coronavirus work because it's just an opportunity to sort of tell people about things. But we also have... political things. We do some information on polling. We're about to launch a um, uh, online course on polling analytics and how to interpret the polls. And we also have a ton of HR resources because another part of our business is obviously helping HR managers manage their data. So um, all sorts of interesting resources and you get a feel for what we do and it's uh, all right there. So please take a look. I love it. Thanks, uh, Dr. Johnson. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. We appreciate it. And uh, it's great information, but a lot of things for people to consider and think about. So Appreciate it. Thank you so much. What a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.